Hey everybody and welcome to yet another episode of the Lowdown Society Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Broden. Today's guest is an astoundingly accomplished, legendary studio musician by the name of Joe Chimay. He's made his mark both in Los Angeles and Nashville. He was an L.A. session great between the mid-70s and up to the 90s, and he's been in Nashville ever since. He's also a very well-known session singer. So his credits come from both the bass and the vocal world. Joe's resume is just absolutely ridiculous. A lot of global superstars and legends like Barry Manilow, Julio Iglesias, George Strait, Lionel Richie, Kenny Rogers, Richard Marks, Faith Hill, Roy Orbison, Billy Ray Cyrus, Rascal Flatts, Dixie Chicks, Carrie Underwood, the list goes on and on and on. I had the pleasure of chatting with Joe at a very busy Starbucks location in Green Hills in Nashville, Tennessee that Joe suggested. You guys will hear a lot of talking in the background and chairs being pulled out and espresso machines being ran, uh, but it's pretty clear what the conversation is all about, and I think you guys will really enjoy it. So I encourage you to go and check out as many of Joe's recordings as you can, because there is so much to learn and such a wide variety of styles that he masters. So without further ado, here is one of my favorite session players of all time, Mr. Joe Chimay. And I moved to Nashville in 2000, and the reason I did was because I was absolutely growing up on, on rock and roll back in Sweden. Mm-hmm. I was very not attracted to most of the rock and roll that was going on in the 90s. I thought it was a lot of complaint rock, as I called it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I get you. And, and all the all the me- great melodies and all that stuff I grew up on wasn't around as much. And a lot of the I looked at some of the studio players I played on all my favorite records in the 80s when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And they had moved to Nashville. There was a few records in particular from the 90s that, that really just, I thought, was more musical and more creative than anything that came out of the rock world. And, and you know, they were uh, uh, wide open spaces, come on over. And, and uh, maybe most of all, at the beginning, uh, it was the early Martina McBride records. Yeah. And uh, all those records had one thing in common, and it was you on those. Coming from LA, the transition into the, the pop country scene, to me it seems like the pop country of the late 90s and early 2000s, they, they were filled with, with pop harmonies and great melody writing and, and sort of melodic bass playing. And, yeah. and did, you, did you sort of think, oh, I'm in a country session, or, or did, you, did you sort of just adapt to what you always did for the song? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was uh, the, the influx of players from LA kind of changed everything yeah and uh, we just wanted to make as good a records as we could yeah the songs were country but they were they started picking songs that had melodies and different chord structures than the, the usual yeah. suspects what I noticed at the time and, and when I moved to time after listening to specifically those records that you were on was the male country was still dominated by hat acts to a certain degree yeah. And the females were allowed to be very, very progressive musically, I found, at the time. Yeah, and, uh, I'll that's hop, true. I'll hop straight to the, to the sort of like how I discovered you. And, and uh, one song in particular, uh, Safe in the Arms of Love by, Mar- by Martina McBride. Mm-hmm. To this day, it's still it's one of my all-time just favorite bass tracks and songs out of this town. 
It's got a sort of a grindy pick bass, and it's got a sounds like it's an overdub fretless. Overdub, yeah. And, and it's got the main riff in sort of a rocking song is straight mandolin, it's a mandolin mm -hmm. sort of solo. And it's just all about everything about that song, even the chorus verse structure and the way it modulates is sort of original to me. You hear that song, and it's it's a beautiful sort of little bit Celtic influenced pop country song and you go it needs rock and roll pick bass up front and a fretless overdose. How does that happen? Well, I don't remember exactly the, the chain of events but it always comes down to listening to a demo and picking some things out of it and reassembling it. And uh, some of those elements were there on the demo. I think there was even a, a sound of some kind that made me want to do that fretless thing. Yeah. It, it sort of sounded like that in it already. Sounded like the kind of idea that on any other Nashville record would, would have been a, a you know, if not a lap steal, a, yeah. a, a slide. Like. Right, right. It does sound like a slide bar. 
and listening to some more of that record, the, the, the straight ahead rock and roll pick thing with, with a little bit of melodic approach, it seemed like that was on more, more tracks that you played on. Certainly it's not the standard warm sort of a lot of your contemporaries in the Nashville studio scene. Mm -hmm. Astounding players, you know, Glenn Worf and, and uh, guys like that. They, they had a really warm, cushy tone and, and you came in with a really mid-rangey. What kind of gear were you recording with for that? Um, what bass was that? I've, somebody told me you used to have a PV bass. That might yeah, be. I still have it. Yeah. That wasn't it. Yeah. I didn't... I don't think I had that yet. Okay. They got, they brought that up and gave it to me. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, PV, you know. Yeah. But it turned out to be just a super sounding recording bass. And I use it on, geez, so many things. Yeah. Um, in fact, the uh, Shania Twain album, Mutt Blank said, bring everything you have. He said that to everybody. Mm -hmm. Paul Lyme had 30 snare drums. And, you know, I had about a dozen basses. And spent a lot of the first day just auditioning instruments. And he picked that one and wanted me to use it on the whole album. Uh, being a, a big Mutt Lang fan and, and certainly uh, listening a lot to his productions, he has a very specific frequency for the bass. Anything muddy or too warm is usually out of his track. It's, it's a very low mid. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the character high mid he takes out, I feel. And the low mid is really where his bass tones live. He likes it to live in the kick drum. Yeah. For Premier Guitar, I wrote a thing about last year. I think I talked to you on the phone shortly thereafter. It seems like when the big money half notes are played, it seems like Mutt, Mutt is very rigid about them being cut on the snare. Hmm. Is that something that, that was, a, was discussed during the... Uh, tell me what you mean exactly. The one and three country bass. It seems like on much record, on the Shania albums, anything that had a more traditional country bass, like a one, it would always cut right on the, when the snare hit. So oh. one, three, off. Yeah. yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. And he's, he's very demanding, and you work on the song all day long. Yeah. But he's also very accurate with his uh, guidance you know he'll he'll say give me less duration on the third note of the bridge you know something that specific yeah so it, by the end of the day you're, you're totally focused yeah. you know yeah everybody goes around and works with each player yeah gets uh, it exactly the way he wants it and then you start making the record so on the come on over record do you remember which bass that you settled on after all that first that day of trying? That PV? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a five? Mm-hmm. Yeah? It's a TL5. TL5. Yeah. Great. Really nice bass. Do you have any stories about any of the specific songs on that record that you... Well, he's so specific about what he wants that he comes in with a demo that has pretty much exactly what he wants. Yeah just played with synths yeah and so just applying human touch to it yeah and playing those parts is pretty much the way it went down wow I uh, um, I mean he'd say you know everybody would stretch every now and then and he, he didn't say no take it back to this or yeah I like that I think David Hungate played on the album before come on over the woman in me mm-hmm 
certainly a much more, if you can use the term at all, certainly a way more Nashville sounding record. Uh, yeah. Warmer, more organic, definitely sounds like less overdubs on it. How did you get the call? Do you know who recommended you or what Matt had heard? What work of yours Mutt had heard when he gave you the call for Come On Over? Somebody recommended me. Maybe Dan Huff. Yeah. And Paul Lime. Yeah. Who I'd worked with for years and years. Yeah. Uh, this question I always ask everybody, and it, it's never not interesting to me, but as a child, what was the artist or the song or the thing that made you click and go, this is it, this is what I gotta do? Oh, the first music I ever actually played was James Brown. Grew up in Baltimore mm -hmm. and had a very big soul music scene there. Yeah. Radio stations and, and I just fell in love with that. All the Stax collection and like I said, James Brown, Otis Redding, all those guys. Yeah. So that's what drew me in. I started in bands playing sax because mm -hmm. I played it in school. And uh, one day, very early on, we had a, a band rehearsal and the bass player didn't show. But it, the bass was there. <laughs> it seems like that's a so, common story. I've heard so, that from yeah, more I can guys. do that. Yeah. You know. <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, and that's when I really knew that I wanted to do this. For, you know, for my life. Yeah. Just when I picked up the bass. Yeah. So him not showing up to rehearsal was, was sort of a. It may have happened sooner or later, but yeah. that kickstarted it. Yeah, that's great. Growing up playing in Baltimore, was it a lot of soul R&B? And yeah. what age did you start playing bass? And what what age did you start making it your your profession? Uh, I guess around 14, I started playing it. Yeah. 13, 14. And what age was your move to LA? Oh, uh, that wasn't until I was 23. Was that the late? 70s, early 80s, kind of? When, when I moved to LA? Yeah. yeah. Mid 70s. Mid 70s? Yeah. No, actually, I was, I was 25. Yeah, 70, 75, I moved there. Yeah. I mean, but the 70s LA session scene in which you became a part is sort of, for those of us who came up a little later, that's a, mm -hmm. sort of a legendary thing. And did you get in it pretty quick, or was. Uh, I'd say a little pretty quick. Uh, when I left Baltimore, I just kept joining different bands and working my way west, yeah. you know. And I ended up in Seattle for three, two and a half years. And when I was there, there's an enormous club scene there. There was then. So a band could work six nights a week, every week. Yeah. So I was doing that. And, uh, while I was there, they had built a studio called K. Smith from L.A. They wanted to have a branch up there. So I started getting some things working in that studio, and they had this sort of a little house band for projects, and I got into that. And that broke me into the recording profession. Mm -hmm. So I kind of had a, a better idea than I would have had, had they not done that. Yeah. So 
and then I just moved down to LA from there. Mm -hmm. The only straight-up interview I could find with you on, on, online is from 2011. You mentioned there, obviously, how how you got in with Lionel Richie. I think was that through a Kenny Rogers thing, and yeah. he heard you. That, that that seems like a good. It was a short answer, but I'm like, there's more to that story. That sounds like fun. Well, it was fun. Uh, it was in Kenny's studio, uh -huh. Lion's Share, and we were cutting a track for Kenny with uh, Barry Gibb producing. Mm -hmm. And there again, it was Paul Lyme and, and me and John Hobbs. Who else? Can't remember. Who else. But uh, we were in there in the small studio cutting this track for Kenny. And Lionel was in Studio A. Mm -hmm. And he and Kenny were good friends. And so they were walking down the hall. And uh, Lionel said, I just left the Commodores. And I don't have a, a band. I don't, I don't even know who to call. You know, what do I do, Kenny? And, uh, and he heard the music coming out of Studio B, and he said, that's what I want. So that's easy enough. He booked us all. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. So out of the early Lana Rich uh, stuff, what what songs from, from that is out that people might, might have heard or should check out? Um, let's see. What did they play on Truly? Uh huh. Uh, running, running with the night. Uh, hello. Oh, yeah. That's a, certainly a big song. Four or five others. I can't remember. Dixie Chicks record um, did a little bit for them and for the industry. I think what, what Shania did, uh, they were not sort of welcome. There was not a blueprint for a band like that. Right. And and that that record um, sort of really not only broke them commercially, but but changed records that were made in Nashville in the following years. It was one of those big ones. Mm -hmm. um, that record, listening to it. Um, it sounds almost the opposite of something like Come On Over, where it just kind of has some more spontaneous energy leaping off the tracks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. how, how were those sessions? Do you remember? Um, well, 
no sessions are like mutt sessions. Yeah, no, no, no. That's you know they were standard. They were three-hour master blocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody shows up and listens to the demo. Yeah, gets a number chart, count it off. So and it was looser. I mean, they had more traditional instruments. You know, banjo and yeah. mandolin. Yeah, but uh, a lot of energy. I'll keep sort of naming off a few of the records that I absolutely loved, as much as a consumer as, as, as anything, but not when I say consumer, I mean as a fan of music, not as a bass player listening to, to bass tracks, but living in a moment, uh, uh, Ty Herndon is one you played on that. Did you play on that entire record? Yeah, yeah. I think so. I'm trying to think of what song that was. That, that was the big single, the title track, Living in a Moment. I've uh, had the good fortune to tour with Ty a little bit just a few years afterwards, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I, I was just instantly smitten with, with a lot of his material, certainly, but with that record. And you're on that too. And then there's one, and I don't really know what happened to these guys, but I was a big fan, a family band. That must have been somewhere in the late 90s. I'm make sure I get the year right here. The Wilkinsons, here oh, yeah. and now. Mm -hmm. That was one of those records that I thought, okay, this is different too. Yeah, she's a good singer. I don't know what happened to them. Yeah, that's one of those, I wish they would have made more music. Country music today is certainly way, way different than, than that late 90s, early 2000s stuff that I was so intrigued by and loved so much and that you were working in. Do you find yourself doing as many sessions, period, today as when you first moved to town, or do you rely more on your Peter Cetera? Yeah, by design. Yeah. I've kind of backed away from the current scene. You know, it, it seems like the last bastion of real music is the live scene. Yeah. And everything is so calculated and produced these days. And it's kind of the same song over and over. It's not what it was, where you, you know, you knew you were going in every day to make, make a creative record. And like I said before, just make it as good as you could make it. Not, not make it exactly like this. Yeah. Exactly like the last hit. So, uh, just enjoying being out and playing for live people. I'm certainly old enough to where I've had that argument because a lot of my friends, when I was, my first few years in Nashville, I was touring very heavily with two or three different acts. Mm -hmm. Shelley Wright was my first gig. He played on her record too, I thought. Yeah. That was how I got in in this town. Yeah. And everyone told me after a few years of heavy touring, well, don't you want to stay in town more? And, and, and first of all, I, I thought the records weren't as fun as they were a few years prior, but the Pro Tools thing was getting more and more the yeah. thing. And I go, I don't know, it seems to have flipped. Because when I was 14 years old, everyone in Sweden was listening to the Toto guys and Tower of Power and all these California session players. And us kids back in Sweden, we wanted to, to be slick and precise like them. And the yeah. studio guys, that's where it's at, you know? And then by the time that everyone told me, you should get off the road and do more, focus more on sessions, I just, I started feeling like what you said. I started feeling like, well, now it's sort of like the life thing separates the boys from the men a little bit, or the yeah. women from the girls. Or, and and it, like you said, the last bastion. 
And what's interesting to me is not only artistically, but financially, that's now where the record labels have to sign 360 deals and right. such. Right. And they have to make money off of t-shirts and, and concert mm -hmm. tickets. Yeah. Yeah, it's a whole different structure now. And it's interesting to me, too, because a lot of people told me, like, well, you know, the live thing, you know, you, you can't rely on that as, as, you, as you grow older. I'm like, first of all, yes, you can. I'm pretty sure Eric Clapton's got a bunch of 70-year-olds. So, so do Springsteen, and they still kick a whole lot of ass. Yeah. They don't look like retirement home bands at all. Uh, and, and second of all, I, I feel like live performance, you know, what, what we do is, is we're the core jester. And I feel like that's the oldest job in the world, next to prostitution. It's like it'll never go <laughs> yeah. away, you know. So it's, 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 you know, that's always been my sort of pride in being primarily a, a touring guy, as, mm -hmm. as it were. Well, another reason I left LA was uh, full band sessions were becoming more rare at that time. Machines came in, mm -hmm. synths, computers, drum machines and composers, TV film composers and record producers could do most of their records at home. Mm -hmm. And they'd build a record and then bring in a guitar player or a bass player to put some life into it, mm -hmm. you know, by yourself, yeah, playing to a track. And there was more and more of that coming on and less and less sessions with a whole band and a singer. Mm -hmm. And Nashville was the only place left doing that regularly. And, and to this day, there's a lot of everyone going down at once. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, it, I think 90% of the sessions, that, that's for financial reasons, but there's certainly there, right. there is artistic benefit to it as well if, if people are listening. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, are you. Uh, you I know a lot of your contemporaries in the uh, in the LA session music scene I know uh, Tim Pierce a guitar player for example and, and guys like that they 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 do a lot of, of um, mail-in sessions as it were is mm -hmm. that something that that you get do a fair amount of as well I have done that because yeah. certainly there has to be from uh, from anything from Lionel Richie to Shania there have to be sort of Amateur singer-songwriters around the world and, and professionals too that that go well. I'd like the guy who was on that. I wonder if, if he'll do it at home for me. I haven't advertised it. Yeah, but if somebody twists your arm. Yeah, if yeah. I have a friend in L.A. or yeah. somewhere that it's one of the good things about Pro Tools is I can stack a whole vocal background yeah. session myself yeah. and yeah. Uh, just send them the disc vocally. I mean, I saw I saw some name here on your on your resume. Uh, I remember my older brother was listening to Laura Branigan record when I was coming up. You, I think you were singing on that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. What was the name of that? Uh, I know it was 1982. Oh, it was just called Branigan. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking of what song, the big hit. Oh, and the Self Control album too. That yeah. was the one that my brother was spinning nonstop. Self Control. Yeah. yeah. And is that Yeah. Oh yeah. We did that.
is We Are The World. You're listed as bass on that. I mean, I know there was a million singers, obviously. Uh, I don't think I played on on that cut. But you were you were on the album. Album, okay. yeah. There were some other songs on the album. Another artist who I got to play with on the road, there's a few on your resume where I was, was, was the road guy for him, but uh, Richard Marks, you sang on his debut album. Or play bass, played, yeah. play bass, yeah. yeah. I know he was about 20 or 21 when he made that record mm -hmm. in 87, the self-titled one. It's always curious if you sort of have a premonition or a feeling like, hey, this kid, this is better than the norm. Or... Um, yeah, I believe so. I met him at Lion's Share also. Yeah. Because he was writing, trying yeah. to get songs into David Foster and yeah. Kenny. And I got to know him there. I think that, that record is still historic for being the first album that had, or Richard is the first artist whose all his first five singles went top five or something like that. Yeah. I got to research, so I'm not talking, but yeah. it's a record that's, that's some, that still hasn't been broken, I think, hmm. from him being so successful on that original record. Today, what's your main sort of session setup? If, if you're not playing for Mutt Lang, it tells you, mm -hmm. Bring every bass you've owned since you were 14. If you're mm -hmm. if you're bringing if you're bringing a double gig bag or three basses, what a the main one is the, uh, straight ahead off the rack uh, Fender Five mm -hmm. P bass. Okay, Fender Five P bass mm -hmm. with only a P or PJ? Just a P. Yeah, stamp P. Yeah. Uh, that I use most of the time. The uh, like I said, that TV sounds really good on some things. Mm -hmm. I've got several jazz basses. The best sounding two I have are four string. Mm -hmm. uh, a 68 jazz mm -hmm. and a 1980 walnut P bass. Oh, and the walnut. That's yeah. interesting. That, uh, that was my favorite bass of all time. Mm -hmm. As soon as you hang out with any Nashville bass player or group of Nashville bass players, there's still people talk DIs till they're blue in the face. We all know it's the fingers, but but do you have a favorite DI where there's a color that you really recognize as being something that feels like you? Um, yeah, for a lot of years I used a, a little one-space one SWR preamp because mm -hmm. it, it just added a little bit of punch mm -hmm. and. You could, you could find that sound in any studio with it. Yeah. You know, sometimes if you just show up with a bass and use a DI, you're kind of at their mercy. Yeah. But I just like the sound of this thing and used it all the time. Is there is there a compressor that that, that has been sort of your signature or go-to or? No, I never had one. You never compressed a track? No, they do in the in the yeah in the booth or yeah. in the mix, yeah. but. Yeah. I never did. I also did not have a compressor in my session rack. Mm -hmm. Compression to me is almost, I don't know, that, that's really personal. And, and, yeah. and in this case, that should be whoever's paying you. I, I never like to have it when, when I'm cutting a track. Yeah. 
it just takes the you got to do that with your, your hands you know to, to they want that concerned about leveling it out yeah uh, I don't like to have it done for me yeah for life purposes when you're out with Peter Cetera I assume it's mostly fly dates and, and you're at the mercy of a, a fly rig are you in here only or is there no uh, it's just carry a base. Yeah. And you show up and there's... Show up and backline provides amps. Yeah. I usually use uh, an SVT yeah. with 810s or, a, or an SWR yeah. head. Yeah. We just, it's all set up. Yeah. We have a good guy that does all that. Yeah. We walk up, show up, do a sound check, and do yeah. a show. For somebody who's done a lot of uh, stuff, not just, again, not just bass, but vocals and, and producing, arranging, songwriting, uh, in music in general, what are you excited about doing? What's on your little bucket list? Oh, that's hard to say. I know, sometimes that changes day to day. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to say. I'm having fun doing this live yeah. gig, being out of the cave, so I want to keep doing that for a while. Yeah, he seems like he likes to, has a steady year to year. Yeah, he's doing great. He's singing great, he looks great, he's happy, so it's good music and a good band. Yeah, So that's really all you can ask for. Yeah. Because even that sometimes, even at a certain echelon, you cannot take that for granted. Right. And when it, when it happens, it's just so wonderful. Yeah, when it's right, it's great. Especially when it's, it's the day job, it's your normal touring mm -hmm. outfit. Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly going to keep writing and experimenting at home. As a writer, then, when you write music for the sake of writing music, because obviously those of us are in this industry full time, and those of us that know that albums don't sell anymore, a lot of my contemporaries that are successful songwriters, they write purposely for sync or for licensing right. Or, right. Or because it's a professional thing. You just have to sort of make it marketable. It would fit yeah. during an intro to an action movie. Or mm -hmm. When you write for the sake of writing, for the sake of writing what's on your heart or, or in your mind, are you Lennon McCartney, sort of Beach Boys? Is there something that, that is in, in the, the very foundation of you as a writer that you go to and... Uh, I think it stems mostly from the music mm -hmm. end of it. I have ideas all the time for music. And it takes me a while to channel it into a song and come up with what's this song saying. Uh. That takes me a long time. Sometimes I have an idea ten years ago, you know. Uh. And it takes it takes a while just to know what this is about, what this song is about. Are you one of those guys that wake up in the middle of the night with an idea and it won't leave you alone until you've at least made like Sometimes. a cell phone recording of it? Yeah. And on occasion, when I've been asked to write something for something specific, I wake up hearing it, and the whole idea. Yeah. Certainly, we both worked for a lot of songwriters who wake up with an idea and, and they can't really communicate it. And it's our job to pick their brain mm -hmm. to get as close as possible to what they cannot show or explain. 
but certainly as a player, I get the giddiest when I wake up and I can I can hear the kick pattern and the bass and the basic chord progression and I don't have to wake up and go fish for it. I, I have the bare bones all show up at once. Those are yeah. rare for me. And it's rare that I hear bass line first. Yeah, me too. You mentioned playing sax earlier. To me, my favorite musicians in the in the world, the musicians that I listen to to get giddy about running and picking up my bass and just playing for the joy of it, a lot of those guys aren't bass players. There's a few sax players, there's a few drummers, there's a few mm -hmm. guitar players. Do you have any musicians whose voice continues to inspire you as a musician? Uh, that channels into your bass playing one way or the other? Like I said before, the, the soul music mm -hmm. that I grew up on makes me go in a certain direction. Yeah. But uh, I, I can't think of any one influence that, yeah. you know, uh, that I draw from. And that's interesting that I, as well, am a Stax guy. Certainly, my father, back in Sweden, he's got thousands of LPs, public school teacher, but complete music fan. So, any American music, when I was, you know, six, seven years old, play Louis Armstrong, and, uh, you know, a lot of folk vocal groups and mm -hmm. stuff like that. But I always, the stacks grabbed me over the Motown because. And as I studied it as an adult, and, and Barry Gordy said, I wanted to make music that everybody could love. Mm -hmm. It wasn't supposed to be offensive, and whatever was rough around the edges with my artist, I cleaned up a little so that it would be palatable to a large audience. Right. While the people at Stax were almost the opposite. They, they gave us the rawest form possible. Yeah. We can all agree that Jamerson was one of a kind, the way he heard syncopation and the way he could fit anything into simple chord progression and never overplay. Yeah. Duck Dunn, to me, he just sort of like, his playing just hugs my soul in a bit more than Jamerson's even, because he just seems so, whatever simple little thing he's playing, the intent is like a, you know, a Peterbilt truck for me. Yeah, yeah. With, with him and, and Jackson together. Yeah. Yeah, I felt the same way. To this day, the industry gives me days where I, where I don't fall out of love with music, but, but I put it away for a second. Mm -hmm. For me, you know, Stax, and, and in my case, early Springsteen, will just get me right back to what the 11-year-old gave up every yeah. old sports for, you know. <laughs> you just I st still have the same kind of sources. But. Yeah, that, that whole catalog. Is it Howard Tate? Eddie Floyd. Jeez, yeah. great records. Yeah, they are. Between the, the almost brute force of, of Duck Dunn and the, and the swagger of Al Jackson, it, I just don't know how you beat it. <laughs> I just don't know how you beat it. Anyways, Joe, we really appreciate you uh, talking to everybody and, and sharing some of your stories. Well, you can tell I'm not much of a talker. Trouble in mind Cause my
Thank you guys so much for hanging in with me in another episode of the Lowdown Society podcast. I hope that you found some new music to listen to through some of Joe's extensive discography. And I encourage you guys to check it out on all music online to, to really dig into some of his stuff. I am recording quite a few new episodes here in Los Angeles over the course of the next few weeks. And I would love for as many people as possible to have a chance to listen to them, obviously. Uh, We are still a very small podcast, so any sharing or telling your friends that you guys feel like doing or even dropping a review on iTunes, uh, all that stuff is greatly appreciated uh, to try to get the word out to as many people as possible that there's a small podcast with a lot of really big players. Whether you're playing polka, big band jazz, pop, standards, keep it funky, keep it low. And I'll see you right back here at the Lowdown Society podcast.